It's time for Defending and Commending the Faith with Joe Mott, inviting the atheist, agnostic, and skeptic to examine for themselves the evidence for the Christian faith. We are all limited by what we do not know and by the things we think we know but are not true. Dr. Joe Mott earned his Ph.D. at LSU and was a distinguished math professor at Florida State University for 38 years, helping to write three math textbooks and authoring over 30 research articles in math. He is now the host of this radio program, Defending and Commending the Faith. Here is Joe Mott. I've discussed three categories regarding the deity of Jesus. First, Jesus' divine credentials, including his resurrection. Second, his divine titles, including Messiah, Son of God, Son of Man, and Savior. Yahweh is attributed to Jesus because of his I Am statements. Third, his divine prerogatives, including his ability to forgive sins and his reception of worship. I gave four additional divine prerogatives in the last episode. I turn now to the fourth category, Jesus' divine attributes. First attribute, Jesus' claim to authority. In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. This is the kind of authority possessed by God alone. Unlike the Old Testament prophets who declared, Thus says the Lord, Jesus would preface his statements with the phrase, But I say unto you, all those can be found in Matthew 5. An amazing claim to his own authority. The German theologian Horst Georg Pohlmann asserts, This unheard of claim to authority is implicit Christology, since it presupposes a unity of Jesus with God that is deeper than that of all men, namely, a unity of essence. This claim to authority is explicable only from the side of his deity. The authority only God himself can claim. With regard to Jesus, there are only two possible modes of behavior. Either to believe that in him God encounters us, or to nail him to the cross as a blasphemer. Second attribute, omnipotence. Jesus demonstrated his omnipotence when he stilled the raging storm on the Sea of Galilee, multiplied the loaves and fish in Mark 6 and Mark 8, and changed water into wine, John 2. The third attribute, omniscience. Jesus exhibited the divine attribute of omniscience in an exchange with Nathanael in John 1, verses 47 and 48, and John 2, verses 24 and 25. Nathanael thought he was unseen by any eye, but he was seen by him 
from whom nothing could be hid. Omniscience is demonstrated in Jesus' knowing people's thoughts before he forgives and heals the paralytic in Mark 2. The same evidence of, of omniscience can be seen where it is declared that Jesus was not trusting himself to them, for he knew all men, for he himself knew what was in man. John 2, verses 24 and 25. The Samaritan woman at the well was impressed with Jesus' omniscience. She said, Come and see a man who told me all the things that I have done. Is this not the Christ? Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. Jesus knew that Lazarus had died after being told he was only sick. When Jesus was arrested in Gethsemane, he shows his omniscience again. The Apostle John writes, So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, said to them, Whom do you seek? That's in John 18, verse 4. We also see that Jesus knew where the animals were that he needed to ride on into Jerusalem. All four Gospels record that he knew in advance that Judas was his betrayer. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he, John 13, verse 19. Before the crucifixion, Jesus took his disciples aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. Jesus knew in advance what was going to happen. Even the disciples came to that same conclusion in John 16, verse 30. Fourth attribute, omnipresence. The divine attribute of omnipresence is not directly affirmed to be true during Jesus' earthly ministry. However, while looking forward to the time when the church would be established, he assured his disciples that when they gathered together in his name, he would be in their midst. Matthew 18, verse 20. Moreover, before his ascension, Jesus told his disciples, I am with you always even to the end of the age, Matthew 28, verse 20. And he said he never would leave them nor forsake them, in Hebrews 13, verse 5. Fifth attribute, eternity. In John 1, verses 1 through 18, is a summation of basically the rest of the Gospel of John. So then we have three divisions of the Gospel of John. First, the summation, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. That constitutes the thesis of the Gospel of John, which reveals the whole truth, as John saw it, concerning Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Second division, in chapter 1, verse 19 through 20, verse 29, we have the selection of miraculous signs that prove the accuracy of the things declared in the first 18 verses. Third division, in chapter 20, verse 30, to chapter 21, verse 25, 
we have the two verses, uh, 20 verses 30 and 31, that show John's purpose for writing his gospel and the epilogue, chapter 21. The thesis, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, has two parts. First, the essential foundational declarations found in verses 1, 14, and 18. And second, the other verses which are parenthetical, illustrating or illuminating the foundational declarations. The structure of the thesis is this. A statement is made, verse 1, for example. Then the statement is illustrated by a parenthesis, verses 2 through 13. A second statement is made, verse 14, part A. And in the middle of the verse 14, there is a second parenthesis of illumination on glory. This is followed by a third parenthesis of illustration, verses 15 to 17. Finally, a third statement is made, verse 18. The designation, the word, is used with the capital W for word four times in these 18 verses. Three in verse 1 and once in verse 14. Verse 1 says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Consider the noun, the word. Note three things about the word. First, the deity. Second, the word is eternal because the word was there in the beginning. So, there is the timeless existence of the word. Third, the word was involved with God in all his activity of creation, etc., now look at the verb was in verse 1. The tense in Greek, in every case, is the imperfect tense. And the imperfect tense suggests not something past or something present or something future, but progressive, continuous, ongoing action that usually occurs in the past. In the beginning was the Word, a continuous fact. And the Word was with God continuously. And the Word was God constantly. If the word for love in the Greek was in the imperfect tense, it would mean, I was loving and I continuously am loving. Then verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us. Again, notice the noun and the verbs. The same noun as in the verse 1 is here, the word. Whatever is meant by the word in verse 1 is also meant in verse 14. But the verbs are now different. Not was, but became and dwelt. Became refers not to the beginning of something new, but to that which already had existence but became new in manifestation. Dwelt literally means pitched a tent or tabernacled. The word pitched his tent among us or dwelt among us or lived among us. 
Something has happened. Something new and unusual. Something fresh and different. The word flesh points to the fact of humanity. It speaks of the humanity of the word. And the two natures of the word are hinted at. Mark the relationship between verse 1 and verse 14. In the beginning was the word, the eternal existence of the word. The word became flesh, so a new form of his existence is manifested. Not a new existence, but a new form of the same existence as God. But in verse 17, we find out that the word is Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is divine and human, has the attribute of eternality, and possesses, we suspect, two natures. The Bible does not explicitly address the question of whether Jesus Christ has two natures or only one, but the only way to adequately explain the biblical data is to say that Jesus is one person with two natures, a human nature and a divine nature. He is both God and man. His natures are inseparably united, not mixed, in what theologians term the hypostatic union. The New Testament affirms that Jesus Christ, who walked the earth, died on a cross and rose again in Jerusalem, was fully human with a fully functioning human nature, but without sin. At the same time, Jesus was fully God. He is a man, but he is more. He is God, but he has joined himself to a human nature. He is not half human and half God, but 100% human and 100% God. An abbreviated way to express this is to refer to Jesus as the God-man. He is a man who is also God, and he is God who became a man. Archimedes, the discoverer of the principles of the lever and the pulley said this, Give me a place to stand, and I will move the earth. For Archimedes, to be able to do wonders, he said there was one necessary condition. The fulcrum of the lever had to be on solid ground. The primary proposition for the Christian, his ultimate act of faith, is the person of Jesus Christ. It is here that the Christian finds a secure place to stand. He is our firm foundation. He is our solid ground. Jesus of Nazareth is the center, the hub around which all things Christian revolve. Thank you for listening to Defending and Commending the Faith with Joe Mott, a production of Wave 94 Radio in Tallahassee, Florida. If you have any questions or comments for Joe, please forward them to Doug Apple at Wave 94 at this email address, dougapple at wave94.com. 
And be sure to join us every Monday evening at 6.45 p.m. on Wave 94 and subscribe through your favorite podcast app, Defending and Commending the Faith with Joe Mott.